You're listening to Radio Free Culture. This is a new, brand new monthly series that we're doing here at WFMU. It's going to air the last Monday of the month in the Too Much Information time slot from 6 to 7. And it's a new series in which we will explore digital technology, digital culture. And it'll be hosted by a variety of WFMU hosts. Ken Friedman did the first one last month, our debut, a conversation with Internet archivist Brewster Kale. You can find that in the Radio Free Culture archive. My name's Benjamin Walker, and I'm hosting this one, which makes the whole thing a little weird because this is my normal time slot. So I'm, you know, the other three weeks of the month, you can catch me hosting uh, too much information. But that's not what this is. And if you're thinking this is just another weird thing that I'm doing for too much information, you are wrong. This is a bona fide new WFMU program. And if you go online at WFMU.org, you can follow along with us. We have the Accu playlist up, and you can follow along. This hour, we're going to be talking about the MP3, the little file that disrupted the music industry and changed our relationship to music. My guest this hour is Jonathan Stern, the author of the book MP3, The Meaning of a Format. It's a brand new book just published by Duke University Press, and he's joining us from Montreal. Jonathan, are you there? Hello. Yes. All right, we've figured this out. Welcome to the program. This is Radio Free Culture. We we figured out our uh, technical difficulties. Whew. Okay. Yeah, thanks. All right. So, uh, in your new book, you're making the case that in order to fully understand the MP3 and its impact on the music industry and culture, we need to ask big questions that go way beyond issues like bitrate and codex. But I want to start things off tonight with sound because it is through the ear that the MP3 makes its appearance. And I'm really curious, after you know, especially reading the book, how you weigh in on the issue of fidelity. Not not as an academic, but as a listener, you know, music fan, sound nerd. You know, if you've got an LP of something, do you put it on before listening to an MP3 of the same track that you might have on your uh, computer or, or iPad or iPhone or iDevice? Well, that's a great question. And uh, first, I just want to say thanks for having me on the show. It's a real uh, privilege to be talking with you and your listeners. And thank you all for listening. So, um, yeah, I'm an audio nerd, but I'm not a full-grade audiophile. So I guess the first thing is, for me, it's all context-dependent. Um, if I'm, you know, listening on a portable device as I'm riding the Metro into work, like the codec is the sort of least of my concerns, right? If, the, you know, the train noise is going to make a bigger difference than anything else. If I'm sitting listening on my stereo, then I would rather, and paying attention to it, I'd rather listen in a lossless format. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, just as uh, one of my, you know, consumerist celebrations of the uh, record, or of the book coming out, interesting slip, um, I went and uh, bought a new cartridge and needle for my record player, and I mean, I haven't done that in many, many years, because uh, I don't really buy new records, I just have old records from when I bought records, and uh, stuff sounded just incredible uh, with, the, with the new needle and uh, uh, cartridge, so I mean, that just goes back to So you to could my hear it. Soul. You could hear, you could hear the difference, like when oh you, when yeah, instantaneously. Yeah. Well, between the new needle and cartridge and the old one, yeah, no, it was like night and day. I mean, the old one was pretty cheap, and the new one cost a little more. So um, maybe it's my wallet that I'm hearing, but um, well, but yeah, no, things sounded uh, much more uh, three dimensional, and there was another octave on the bass and the Black Uhuru record I put on and stuff. So <laughs> here, here at WFMU, I think. We, you know, the staff and audience does sort of skew audiophile. I mean, there, uh-huh. was, a, there was a conversation uh, at lunch the other day on on the issue of Steve Jobs actually preferring vinyl, which uh, uh-huh. set off a whole host of, of angry uh, commenting. But uh, I just want to add in that the audience can join in. Uh, we're going to take calls from uh, the listeners this hour. The number is 201-209-9368. Or you can uh, check in on the Radio Free Culture Accu playlist. That's at WFMU.org org and love to hear uh, some folks weighing in on that debate about just just listening um 
but the key word is compression. MP3s are compressed files. And, 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 you know, immediately what I've noticed when you have conversations about MP3s, people get, you know, get confused right away. But it is fair to say, right, that it, the issue is that we're dealing with compression. But is it because of this compression that makes the MP3 file inferior, Jonathan? Well, I mean, inferior for what? That's the question. Uh, and it depends also on the recording as well. Uh, what I would say is oftentimes people get confused about what the sonic problem, what the causes of sonic problems are in MP3s. So they think that it's the missing frequencies they're not hearing, when in fact what they're hearing are artifacts of, that are sort of side effects of the encoding process in the same way that you'd hear distortion on a tape machine or something like that that's a side effect of how it works. So... Um, you know, is a MP3 lower bandwidth than a lossless file? Absolutely. Um, can you hear the difference just because a machine registers that the difference exists? Mm -hmm. Well, that depends a lot on context and what the material is and who's listening and how. Well, there's also a model, a psychoacoustic model, which is yeah. the, at, at the basis of the, of the math here. Can you tell us what that is and how that <laughs> leads to perceptual coding, which, you know, gives us the MP3? Right, okay. So the psychoacoustic model, I think, is the coolest thing in the whole um, in the whole technology and the most fascinating. It's actually why I wrote the book in the first place. So when an encoder, um, so we're going to personify the encoder now. You give the encoder a track off a CD. We're going to call that a song. Um, you give the encoder a song. It analyzes the song. The first thing it does is it gets rid of all the redundant data because... Um, there are techniques it can use which are the same as when you like uh, zip or stuff in a file um, that uh, reduce the size of the file without actually changing any of the um, sonic content. But that only gets you to about the 50% the size of a file on a compact disc, give or take. Um, and so what the developers of, of uh, MPEG Audio needed in the 1980s, and actually lots of people were, were sort of stumbling upon this technique for different reasons, they needed a way to make it smaller. And um, some pretty clever people figured out that one way to make it smaller is to remove the parts of the signal that you're not going to hear anyway. Because the ear, um, people's ears in general anyway, are not perfect transducers any more than microphones and speakers are. Um, and in fact, between the ear and the mind, there's a lot of sound that might register on a microphone or in a computer analysis program that um, a listener is unlikely to hear. And so what the psychoacoustic model does is it uses a model of the ear's inability to hear certain kinds of sounds and basically predicts, okay, this part of the audio is unlikely to be noticed. We'll remove that. And so the result is a much, much smaller file. And what's amazing is not that it works perfectly because it doesn't. What's amazing is how well it works, um, given that, you know, when you're talking about a 128K MP3, that's about 12% the size yeah. of a file on a compact disc. Um, and in a lot of cases, it still sounds a lot like music. So Yeah, and this, this removal here, you, you, which is at the basis of the perceptual coding, gives uh -huh. us something that you call perceptual techniques. In other words, it's not just that these spaces that are created by the removal of certain sounds that aren't available to the human ear. It, you, you really want us to focus on that, that process because that becomes uh, a factor you know, as the, as the story progresses. So can you, can you talk about this term perceptual techniques? What are you, what are you trying to say there? So, um, so perceptual coding is like the generic name for the technology behind the MP3, but perceptual techniques is a term that I, I'd, I'd sort of, um, I didn't exactly coin it. I sort of uh, perverted it um, from uh, other uses that were developed in the early 20th century. So if you go back to the 1910s, there are all these people looking into the practical applications of psychology into industry. And this field rose up called psychotechnics, um, which is basically the application of, of uh, the invention of industrial psychology. And psychotechnicians would study everything from perception hmm to, um, you know, who's crazy enough to fly an airplane but not so crazy as to crash it. 
right? So you have this sort of range of things that they were interested in. Um, and Friedrich Hitler, the German media theorist, famously said, all media are psychotechnologies. But when I use the term perceptual techniques, I think of it as kind of an ergonomics of the ear. And in fact, if you look at what happens um, as uh, Bell Labs gets founded and, and developed in the 19-teens and 20s, is they start doing research into um, the basics of speech and hearing. Uh, and what they want to find out is basically what are the limits, what's the minimal amount of speech that we need to transmit on a phone line in order for you to be under, understandable on the other end. So, for instance, um, this is why phones and, in fact, the Skype call that I'm making to you, they don't distinguish very well between S sounds, S as in uh, Sam, and F sounds, F as in fun, um, because your average listener through just everyday language use can sort of contextually mm. make sense of the difference. Um, so that level of definition isn't, isn't actually necessary to the phone line. So perceptual techniques then is this sort of technique of tuning media systems to the limits of human perception in order to get over um, various kinds of limitations, say, in the amount of bandwidth and infrastructure can uh, transmit um, or to make more money. Uh, yeah. which is what Bell, Bell was interested in. So they figured out a way by, by the end of the 1920s to jam four phone calls into a line where there had only been one before. And you see the same story uh, working itself out again in color television with satellite, with the Internet. And the MP3 is part of that very long yeah. history, sort of tuning media to the limits of perception or to the measured limits of perception, I should say. Yeah, you brought up the word monetization here. And I, and I think that's key because it's not just in terms of making the, the file smaller. I mean, today we have a surplus value where you know services like Arbitron are sticking in excess information that's inaudible to the, to the human he ear to sort of use these spaces for other, uh, other services, you know, other businesses are almost built on top of the same perceptual coding. And, and, and it seems, though, that when you go back to the engineers hard at work on the MP3 and the story, you, you point out, though, that the business model, you know, there was this monetization idea, but the, the business model, they sort of missed the big one. You know, you talk about the Internet. Like, no one, you know, lots of folks did, but they seemed to, to miss that. How, how, how did that happen? Well, I wouldn't say people missed the Internet. I would say, you know, the Internet wasn't really something that was on a lot of people's radar in the media industry in the late 80s and early 90s. So it was it was around. But, you know, the way institutions plan is to basically take whatever form they have and then aggrandize it, make it bigger, huh. develop it. Right. So if you look at um, plans for digital audio distribution systems that were developed by the phone company, that were developed by radio, that were developed by record labels when they were developed, they didn't really have this idea of peer to peer sharing of audio um, because nobody did that. I mean, there was, you know, obviously people taping um, records for one another and dubbing tapes and things like that. Um, but they just didn't see it as something that was likely to come. So, in fact, if you look at the um, the original headers uh, for the MP3 that uh, that are used in, in the file to sort of tell the computer this is an MP3 file, this is how it works, there's actually a bit that's copy protection in there, and it's just zero or one. And it would be the easiest thing in the world for someone who who has any hacking skill to crack. But um, the reason that bit's there is because they assumed, the Moving Picture Experts group assumed that basically you'd be using consumer-level equipment like a, a digital audio tape machine or even a tape deck. Um, and so they could simply um, change this um, bit in the file on the production end and then users wouldn't be able to um, change it just as you can't edit a compact disc with your CD player. Uh -huh. You know, but let's come back to these engineers because I, I, I want to come back to the listening test. You know, at the oh, end yeah. of the day, the MP3 doesn't make it out of the lab if folks can't get to where, you know, everyone around the table agrees that this is a certain audio quality. Can you talk about some of these tests? It seems like Suzanne Vega was like the number one criteria at, at, at one point or for oh, one of the tests. Suzanne Vega's story is a great story. It's not entirely – well, it's just in the way the press has told the story. It's a little bit oversold. So I'll tell the Vega story, and then I'll tell my story. So 
um, supposedly Carl Heinz Brandenburg, who's one of the main engineers uh, involved in the development of the MP3, was almost done. Uh, what? Well, he thought he was almost done with the perceptual coding algorithm. He hears Vega's song on the radio in the office, says, "That's beautiful. Let me try to compress that," and it completely breaks the system. Uh, and so then they spend all this time fixing it and indeed they did continue to use her song um throughout the uh throughout the official mpeg tests and uh it was even still used in the mid 90s on on um subsequent formats um but basically the way listening tests work is uh and the audio files will be familiar with uh, all the debates around these double blind triple stimulus tests mm-hmm. um or even more than triple stimulus so you'd have um for instance in the first um MPEG test, you had four different coding devices, and these were actually hardware devices, so they had to they had these elaborate systems where um, a computer would introduce different delay to overcome the latency of each uh, device, and so you'd have these uh, listeners stationed and you'd play a recording, which could be Suzanne Vega, there was a Castanets recording that's notorious for breaking the encoder, it still, um, still wreaks havoc, even with uh, just the basic iTunes and encoders and they would sit and they would switch back and forth between these different um, um, these different encoding schemes and try to tell the difference between those and an original uh, recording and of course the thing about a listening test is you, it's not over when you get it right once it's over after you get it right uh, so many times that it's not just random skill and and um, so these tests were actually quite grueling. Um, early in the history of, you know, historical development of the technology when it's, you know, um, a guy in a lab with an idea, you know, often uh, the engineers will just test on themselves. But as um, the technology became institutionalized, more and more they went to professional or expert listeners. And then by the time you get to the moving picture experts groups at the beginning, uh, at the beginning of the 1990s, um, it's representatives from all these audio companies who come and test out the technology. Um, I guess the other thing I should say, though, is the goal is a certain level of transparency or acceptable uh, lack of transparency, but the results from a test and the results from listening to a format over five or ten years are very, very different. And they even knew this. If you read articles at the time, I forget who said it, but uh, one of the one of the engineers said, "You know, when you buy a new house, it's it's you're you're you're, you're you marvel at the view out of the living room window, and it's only later that you notice that there's a crack or a scratch in the window." Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm hoping that we can hear from some uh, some folks out there in listener land. The number is 201-209-9368. We're talking with Jonathan Stern. His new book uh, from Duke University Press is called MP3, The Meaning of a Format. I know for our audiophile audience, this is still a very contentious uh, issue. Uh, listening tests even still come up. But you know, the tests are never about fidelity, and you, you seem to make this point a lot. But I learned this actually at you know, early age, in the mid-'90s, that uh, I wanted to start recording radio interviews. I was living in Boston at the time. And the engineers at the gatekeepers at the local NPR station had sort of set this rule that the only, the only uh, broadcast quality interviews could be created from DAT recorders. And DAT recorders were expensive, especially for, you know, a ne'er-do-well like myself. But I was able to get a mini-disc recorder, and I started using it, and I wanted to see if I could get through the door to to work on one of these shows. And the broadcast engineer was, you know, had just set his foot down that no, it had to be a DAT or it wasn't broadcast quality. And then another reporter forced this engineer to do a listening test, Jonathan, and obviously, you know what happened, that engineer failed and the doors were thrown open (laughs) that's well and that's the thing is uh um i think sometimes people are more upset about the idea that they might not be getting all the audio or not hearing all the audio than actually at what they're hearing um which isn't just again i'm not saying that uh mp3s are the you know always equivalent to compact disc but there's so many other factors if you're yeah about sound quality. Well, this was, I mean, you know, this was about more about power, though. I, again, it just it. I learned at an early age that the question about format is a very loaded issue, yeah. and that seems to be what you're, you know, one of the main themes in this book. That it's, it never really was. I mean, well, that's the question. Is it fair to say that it never really was about fidelity, just about fidelity since day one? 
Well, I mean, I don't even use the word fidelity really anymore. I, I think in terms of definition, which is a technical, um, a technical thing, which is what um, you know Michel Chion says. He's a, he's a uh, writer on on film sound. If you think about uh, dialogue where you're listening to two characters and one turns and walks away, if it were faithful to reality, uh, you'd lose all the high end on their voice as they turn away. But of course, you keep the crisp high end because, you know, they're using all the expensive uh, um, Hollywood equipment, right? So there's definition, which is one concern. And then I guess you could say phonics or just simply what people like or what sounds good or aesthetics which is the other issue um and in fact there are all these studies that show um that people you know of certain generations sort of like the sound of the media they grew up with so you come to expect music to sound like records if you grew up with records but if you grow up with 128 kmp3s those sound more like music is supposed to sound um, so, you know, it is, it is about fidelity to ideas of how music's supposed to sound, but it's not necessarily yeah. um, faithfulness to some kind of reality outside of sound yeah. reproduction. Well, bringing up the other formats, you know, brings us to, you know, another one of the major themes in this book that, you know, even you hint at in the title. You, you talk about that media theory has had a rich history, but now it is time for format theory. What would that be and why do we need it? Well... Um, it's not just format theory. It's just uh, I'm trying to explode the idea of media theory. So for most of the 20th century, um, when people talk about communication technologies, they, th- they think of them as in terms of these relatively stable media. So television, cinema, newspapers, radio, um, and so on and so forth. What I'm arguing is that the historical changes we're seeing now often happen above and below the levels of media and people usually because you know people sort of who aren't involved with um, media industries or who don't think about it a lot encounter stuff through consumer electronics so they'll say things like well the ipod is really changing my life or the iphone is really changing my life um but in fact a lot of the really sort of socially important changes are happening completely at completely different levels either the development of new infrastructures for communication think about all the things that somebody had to be built just for you to make a Skype call to me uh, so that we could uh, have this conversation. Um, it can happen at the level of formats, protocols, uh, standards. Uh, so think about trying to do um, any kind of um, textual work in a bureaucracy today without being able to use Microsoft's doc format or Adobe's PDF format, right? It becomes very quick, difficult very quickly. Um, so formats and standards become modes of industrial control. They, be, they, they shape the look and feel um, and, and sound of a medium. So think about the conversion from standard definition to high definition television. Mm-hmm. Um, and they even shape sort of the range of ways can use um, a uh, medium. So it's still recorded sound, but you know some, the difference between a 45, an LP, a compact disc, and an MP3 is huge, even though by our old definition of medium, it's all just sound. Yeah. So when the MP3 becomes, you know, uh, the McLuhan medium is, as the message, how, when we start to look at it as a format, what are some of the things that y- you want to have us think about? Well, um, I do want I want people to think across scales, right? So how do infrastructures um, relate to listening experiences? Um, how do um, standards, which are not uh, regulated by governments usually, um, how do they affect uh, the way that we um, interact or um, involve ourselves with music? And in fact, that's a big political point of the book. Uh, we still mostly have arguments around communication policy, either in terms of debates around intellectual property, which are, of course, hugely important, um, or broadcast regulation, which, again, hugely important. Mm-hmm. But there's this whole other level that states don't even touch, which are these standards um, and platforms and uh, protocols, right? And so you think about the enormous cultural influence um, exerted by organizations like Google, like Facebook uh, today. They're subject to so much less regulation and public debate and public scrutiny in some ways um, than older broadcast media, except 
they run afoul of either broadcast regulations or intellectual property law. Yeah. And so uh, by looking at sort of not just media as um, finished consumer electronics, but things with software in them with different um, processing and data routines, we can sort of begin to imagine them as, or better imagine them, as uh, devices with certain kinds of social scripts written into them, which people... Yes or conform to or challenge in some ways. Yeah, yeah, these internal scripts. I think for me, you know, the portability and the mobility of the MP3 is always something I just thought of as, as an unintended consequence. You know, the files were small, they were easy to share, but in a way you, you want us to sort of see them as not as byproduct products of the compression algorithms, but rather sort of built-in uh, issues that, you know, that, that, that end up affecting us in many, many different ways. Yeah, for sure. And um, the portability is a great example of that. I mean, obviously the industry, um, and it was really several industries, right? It was the computer industry. It was consumer electronics industries. It was uh, radio organizations in Europe. um, And it was people uh, interested in developing a video compact disc that all went into uh, the moving picture experts group. Um, They were all interested in greater mobility of audio. They just thought it was for them and on their terms. And it was only later um, that it became clear that there were going to be other ways uh, that people could uh, make use of much smaller files. And in fact, you know, the um, after the MPEG standard was set, uh, layer two, which is I guess you'd call it an MP2, although nobody actually does call it, that was the one that was commercially taken up for video compact disc for digital um, audio broadcast. Um, and the uh, people who owned the rights to layer three were sort of left wandering in the wilderness for a business model. And it wasn't until their encoding software was actually cracked by an Australian hacker and distributed widely on the internet, people all of a sudden said, hey, these actually make much smaller files. Um, we should use these yeah. for uh, distributing music. Yeah. You know, as when you situate the MP3 in the history of compression, I, I also want to make it clear here that you want us to, you, you really warn us about seeing the MP3 as something new. As much as it did explode everything, you seem to almost want to trace it back. Like how far, Jonathan, like all the way to electric transmission. How far does it go? Well, if you're talking about the history of compression, I mean, it goes all the way back to the first person that rolled up a scroll of paper, right? I mean, it's all about um, when we normally tell our media histories, and this is actually how new media are sold to people, um, they're told in terms of a history of verisimilitude, right? Or you could say fidelity or just high definition, right? That each new generation of communication technology brings a sort of richer, deeper, more immersive experience. But in fact, there's this whole other history of communication, which is about um, not... Um, not the user experience, but about the efficient use of resources, about the value of transmission. And so, you know, the MP3 is part of this much longer history of, um, as I said, you know, folding or rolling up paper. It's why records spin. It's why tape spools. It's why letters go in envelopes. Um, it's why um, Morse code was invented for, for telegraphs. All of this history of compressing information for the purposes of transmission is actually a central feature of modern culture and it's an essentially enabling feature of things like um, the internet and like uh, social media that we sort of live with on a daily basis today. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it seems like that's one of the criticisms you, you get about MP3s or, or compression right now and that we've seen, you know, people like to make the case that, you know, bandwidth has exploded, uh, file sizes don't need to be this small, why do we even need uh, compression. You have formats, you know, uh, FLAC, I think of, you know, <laughs> but, you know, a lot harder to, 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 to cart around. But you do get this case that, well, haven't we hit where we don't need the compression algorithms anymore? That's well, that's right. a question um you know and if you're talking about storing files on your hard drive and streaming them out your stereo you don't really need i mean you could do you know hard drives are so big at this you could probably just rip the cd straight to wave or aiff files and you'd be fine um but there's sort of there's a set of things that are going to keep mp3s around for a while at least um the first is that um 
engineers basically want to shove audio into smaller and smaller places. So as mobile phones become more powerful, right, they moved from um, very simple ringing sounds to melodic ringtones to specially encoded files, and now they play back MP3s. Um, you know, and most mobile phones are still much smaller than regular hard drives. Mm-hmm. Still want that level of compression if your expectation is I'm going to have thousands of songs in my pocket as opposed to I'm going to carry this record around today and listen, to it, which is what, of course, people did with, uh, you know, Sony Walkmans and uh, compact portable CD players and stuff. Right. So that's one thing. The second thing is that there are more MP3 files in circulation today than all other forms of recording combined. And what that means is, um, well, it means a couple of things. One is something called path dependency, which is when a format dominates in a market or in a technological field, uh, it becomes much harder to make technology that doesn't conform to it somehow. So everything new that comes out uh, that plays audio, at least if it's digital, tends to be compatible with MP3 so that people can play them. And then there's the generational effect, which is you have a generation of people now that grew up not buying music. And the result of that is um, you know, it was one thing to get baby boomers who'd bought all their records and then worn them out. It was one thing to get them to buy compact discs to replace their records. But coming out with a higher definition format for somebody who's not used to buying music, are they going to then buy the higher definition music if they weren't, if they didn't buy the MP3s in the first place? Yeah. You know, I always have, I've always had a theory that it really was never, you know, that upgrade from records to CDs never was also about definition or, or, to use your word or fidelity it was actually that you didn't have to get off your fat butt to turn the record over <laughs> that was just my 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 personal theory because there was something about the random access memory the the ease of cds that again you know you see moving forward with uh, uh with mp3s but you know you point out in your book that you know your book could have been called mini disc the meaning of a format. I mean, there, even though there is the ubiquity, the social ubiquity of the MP3, it still had to win. I mean, what was the, what were, what, is there a defining factor that, that, that gives it this giant win? Um, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, and the, the mini disc comment is when I'm saying, you know, it's sort of, as you said, arbitrary, which, uh, yeah. which, uh, which format wins. It's not, uh, it's not a Darwinian sort of, natural selection thing. It has a lot to do with sort of industrial and political contingencies. So MP3 became the dominant format, I think, precisely because it was cracked um, right at a time when uh, U.S. campuses were getting wired up for broadband internet. Um, Computers more and more were becoming multimedia devices and had CD drives in them already and and came with sound cards we forget that multimedia was a buzzword um in the early uh, 1990s as a hot new thing for computers right so all these things had to be in place and once uh people could acquire the software uh cheaply or for free um to rip cds to mp3s and once people started building infrastructures online for sharing music obviously you know, starting with the Internet Underground Music Archive, um, but very quickly accelerating um, to companies like eMusic and then Napster. Um, there just became this sort of groundswell of, of uh, support for sharing files in MP3 format as opposed to some other format because um, it was the smallest thing available for yeah. that highest definition. Um, it was relatively cheaper free to end users even though the licensing rules for mp3 are somewhat different than that um and uh it just reached a certain density you know uh real audio files were all over the internet in the late 90s but they sounded terrible uh you then they weren't very usable they had all these limits on them um and of course um the record industry i mean on one hand, and I actually write this in the book, you know, that the the main thrust of, even though there were lots of people in the record industry trying to figure out how to sell music online, there was a lot of resistance to it. Um, and so they weren't really thinking about how to get ahead of it and how to make use of it. 
And in fact, um, they were trying to stop it. I mean, you point out that, you know, at one point you have Sony Music pitted against, you know, the, the Sony technology side making a player that plays MP3s when Sony Music is doing its best to stop that. Yeah, yeah. So you have, and actually, that's a great allegory of sort of what happened. The Sony Corporation is so big that you have the music label suing Napster while the Consumer Electronics Department is... Um, uh, is is releasing a CD player that plays MP3s, right? They're playing both ends against the middle. Um, but this is the other thing: is that, uh, and and I'm hardly the first person to make this point, um, that uh, you know the various technology industries used MP3s as a kind of sales mechanism for things like broadband internet, um, for larger hard drives, for consumer electronics, iPods. I mean, before the the iTunes. Right, yeah. it, it it presupposed that you had um, music in a in a in a portable format that you could you know carry around with you, and that you would have thousands of songs to listen to. Yeah, you know, uh, we've got about fifteen minutes left. I'd, I'd love to see if we can get some of the audience in. Uh, the number is two zero one two zero nine nine three six eight. You can give us a call. I'm talking with Jonathan Stern, the author of a new book called MP3, The Meaning of a Format. You can also uh, check us out online at WFMU.org. We've got the playlist page going for Radio Free Culture. Um, I think one of the most amazing things I got from your book is that the MP3, this little file, can actually help us move the file sharing debate forward. And I'd, and, and I'd love to sort of use the remaining uh time we've got to, to have you walk us through how this happened. It seems that the place to start with is the reminder that not only did the MP3 win, but it's not an open source format. Like that alone, you suggest, is a warning to show just how mixed up all the metaphors are, how confused the forests and the trees are, and how perhaps the sides have it wrong when we try to look at this debate. Yeah, so the first thing is MP3 is not open source. It's it's uh, very valuable intellectual property, bringing in millions or tens of millions of euros every year to the people who own it. And in fact, you can go to mp3licensing.com and see a list of people who pay to use the MP3 um, software. And basically, if you make anything that yields you $100,000 or more a year, um, you've got to pay... Um, uh, you've got to pay a licensing fee to use the the, uh, the code for the MP3. So it's incredibly profitable, right? And people like Microsoft um, and Mattel uh, and, um, for that matter, focus on the family and CNN and Airbus all pay fees for the for the right to to license the MP3 technology. So it's not it's it's open in the sense that you can get the code and and use it but it's not open in the sense of um something that can be freely shared um and used by anybody for any purpose it is it is a sort of valuable uh property um but the other thing is you know for me uh, the thing i became quite convinced of quickly was that the piracy debate um, has been so completely messed up because it's become completely polarized. On one side, you have um, the owners of um, intellectual property who are often not the artists, but rather the uh, record labels um, and the recording industry uh, who say, um, you know, all of this sharing online is piracy. And by the way, piracy isn't a legal term exactly. It's, uh, it's basically... Um, slang for unauthorized copying and there's a lot of debate over um, whether the term's even applicable. I mean it is a sort of bizarre metaphor when you think that the term includes both um, somebody in their dorm room downloading um, the latest hit song and people in a boat off the coast of Eastern Africa with guns who board other boats. Uh, It's a pretty incredibly plastic term. Mm -hmm. Um, So you know, on one hand, that's one side of the debate, right? And it's saying, we represent music, we represent musicians, nobody should ever copy any files except as we in, in, under the conditions that we say are allowable, right? And then you have the other side, which is the sort of free culture argument, um, which often turns out to be a kind of consumerist argument of like, well, I can get the music for free, I want it, um, so I should have it. Um, but both sides aren't asking fundamental question which is simply how should a culture 
invest in and support musical production? What are the institutions that would allow that to happen? What are the mechanisms of paying musicians that would allow that to happen? So, for instance, there's no reason. I mean, it's only been 100 years. It's not even really been 100 years that um, musicians made their source of income primarily through sales of recordings, right? There's no reason. Music existed long before that was possible, and it will exist long after um, there's any money to be made in in, uh, sound recording. So cultures don't have to support. If you support music and support musicians, it doesn't necessarily have to be um, through buying their recordings. Um, You know, and at the same time, the idea that... um, you know, people are willing to pay quite a bit of money for internet connections, for consumer electronics, um, for um, various kinds of um, uh, subscriptions, add-ons, gadgets, and so on and so forth, but that they're not willing to pay for music, I think is quite an interesting historical development. So- because basically one industry using another for their own benefit. Yeah, so how does the MP3 then enable us to sort of look beyond this market economy model of, of music circulation? Well, you know, the, this, this story you usually get is one of a gift economy, um, but I actually think it's more, I don't know, it's more like sort of strangers making room for one another um, on a train in a city. Yeah, you know, spell this out. This is, this is, I think, one of my favorite, you know, favorite moments in the book. If you could just spell this out for us here. I mean, you know, people usually say, well, it's a gift, but a gift always comes with an obligation. If I give you a birthday present, then you know if you don't give me a birthday present, it'll be socially awkward, right? Um, but in fact, if you think about file sharing, it's not doesn't work that way. It's much more about being co-present with, you know, hundreds, thousands, millions of strangers and sort of facilitating their action in a fairly unthought-through and uh, collaborative way. So, um, you know, just as when, I mean, and Lord knows this doesn't always work, right? But just as during rush hour, people sort of, you know, they bump into each other on trains, but they also make room for one another. Um, So, too, I think file sharing works in the same sort of way. It's a largely anonymous undertaking. It's not exactly done out of um, uh, altruism to other people, um, but there are sort of structures in place that make it easier to be altruistic to others. So if you look at something like uh, the BitTorrent protocol, where just as you're downloading, you're also uploading, right? That's a, that's a, a system into place to make it easier for people to uh, um, to sort of share share files with one another, um, and so when I think about that system, I think, well, it's it it, it actually is a lot like other parts of urban life where um, people do interact, but they don't interact in this sort of immediate relationship of mutual obligation. Um, and in order for the system to work, somebody does have to sort of be looking down on it and. Fac- it and saying, well, you know, maybe we should take some seats out of these metro cars so there's more room for people to make space for each other um, um, and make decisions make decisions like that. So. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, when you look at it, uh, you know, from, from this view, it seems that you, you actually do say this, that the, uh, if the MP3 story tells us something, it's that the recording industry has failed to, to provide, you know, or the the desire for music and the desire to be with music is greater than anything the recording industry has been able to imagine and provide. So on the one hand, it seems that you could be saying that the music industry has just failed. The failure of the music industry is what leads to a lot of this other uh, blooming new processes. But I'm not sure that's exactly what you're saying. Well, that's not what I was just saying a moment ago, but I I agree. I stand by what I wrote. Um, (laughs) uh, You know, I think... uh, I think the challenge really is to sort of build models of music, musical production, circulation, consumption, recirculation, sharing, and appropriation, to build models that are based in what's good for music, what's good for culture, what's good for social life, and only then after that begin asking questions about monetization and industrialization. That's really the challenge. Uh, you know, I, I 
the the piracy story is fascinating because if you go back to the 1980s and look at a country like India, at one point the so-called legitimate or official recording industry actually turned to pirate dubbing houses because they couldn't meet demand for recording, and they said, um, you know, could you guys run off uh, some more tapes for us, uh, and we'll give you a cut of the sales. Um, yeah, so no, the- you still see that today, though. I think with marketing campaigns for movies that will use, you know, seed or even music, right? They'll seed uh, advanced copies on uh, uh, pirate sites or BitTorrent communities to get interest in the product. Yeah, yeah. And so the thing that basically for a good portion of the 20th century, the recording industry worked on a model of manufactured scarcity of music. If music is primarily something that exists in recordings and we control the circulation of recordings, well, then we have a scarcity economy um, that's very useful the people that control um, the the good that is in supply. But what's happened with uh, MP3s, with file sharing, and with sort of changes in infrastructure, and this is just MP3s anymore, right? It's also books and movies and TV shows, is this logic of artificial scarcity has completely fallen apart. And in fact, now what we have is a surplus. Um, so while record sales are going down, more music goes online every day. More music is available uh, in recorded form than at any other time in world history. If you love music, it's a wonderful, although also confusing time. Yeah, yeah, and it seems that the surplus also gives rise to something that, uh, I, I hope I'm saying his name right, Peter Sesdi, and this notion of the right to music. It seems that that's directly something, that, uh, another consequence. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so um, Zendi has this wonderful book called Listening, A History of Our Ears, which I highly recommend. Um, You know, and his point is when you're talking about um, music, so often it's it's discussed in terms of the rights of the musician, the rights of the copyright owner, and he just turns it around and says, well, what about the rights of the listener? What about the right to music as a listener? What about the right to access? Right, and this is... This is a broader question around um, culture, right? How, 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 as a society, might we better facilitate people's access to um, uh, to culture, which is really a common good and something that ought to be um, more available rather than less? Again, um, not in a scarcity economy, but in an economy of availability and and basically one that's curated. Yeah, you seem to say that at this moment in time, you know, you, you end with this suggestion that right now, uh, for the first time in well over a generation, we have this opportunity to, to build a cultural infrastructure that's based on different values. And, and, and can you maybe talk? Well, let's end with that. Tell us a little bit about that. So um, I think the quote ends with different values than buying and selling. Yes, that stuff. <laughs> Um, and that's really important, right? So if you said, okay, the important thing about music is not buying and selling, what would change? Well, I mean, it isn't just that people would get music for free. We'd think about musicians differently, and musicians would think about themselves differently. When you think about um, so much of musical culture, even like the most DIY punk culture is so entrepreneurial and built around promotion um, and built around sort of uh, aggrandizement of products of of attitudes and so on and so forth if you eliminate that and say well music is a is an activity that people do and it occurs at all these different levels i mean a a comparison i think would be something like cooking um where you know it's something people do in their homes for functional purposes it's something they do um to entertain for social purposes and of course you can also go out and pay someone uh, to cook for you or even buy something that's pre-cooked for you in uh, exactly the many ways you can uh, engage with music. So, you know, I think about musical culture, musical values other than buying and selling. I think about participation. I think about sharing. I think about um, not so much reciprocity as complementarity. I think about exploration. I think about interest in otherness and difference, curiosity about people not like yourself, um, the desire to explore, right? These are all sort of the best aspects of musical culture, musical fandom, um, people's hobbies and interests in music. And these are the things we ought to be uh, 
promoting more than uh, a music business, uh, which, you know, is, is a valid thing, but ought to um, support those broader cultural values rather than have them be subordinated to its goals of monetizing music in one way or another. Jonathan, we have a call. I'm going to grab it real quick. Uh, hello, caller. Hello there. Awesome. How's it going? You got a question for our guest? Yes, I do. Go I do, for it. Actually. One What's your name? What's your name and where are you calling from? This is Cedric from Newport Ridge. All right. <laughs> Hello, Benjamin. Hello. And, and Jonathan? Yeah, hi. Hi there. What about, now I'm going to go back to when you were talking about, uh, you know, like listening tests and stuff, but doesn't music also affect our non-hearing senses, like beyond and below what our ability to perceive is, but where we can still feel it, you know, on a physical level? Well, yeah, absolutely. Especially, uh, I mean, especially if you're talking about music in in a dance club, um, in uh, an automobile, in a in a space where you're like physically feeling it. Absolutely, it it has all sorts of uh, embodied relations. And I would argue listening is a highly embodied activity. It's not just your ears, right? But it's, you know, are you sitting in a chair? Are you standing? Where are you in the room? What's the room like? What are you doing while you're listening? Absolutely. I, and I think, you know, other parts of our nervous system could easily be reacting to stuff that, you know, our limited hearing could not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, in fact, you know, I, I recommend the book, uh, Frederick, because uh, <laughs> it, these 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 extra processes are are still on the table. I mean, I was really again, you know, we talked about the Arbitron thing, Jonathan, but the idea of uh, uh, of how some of these non audible bands can be put to use. Yes. All right. Yep. Yep. Oh, Jonathan, did I lose you? No, no, I'm still here. Oh, okay. Um, sorry, Frederick. We're gonna have to go because we're out of time. But uh, Jonathan Stern, I want to thank you for uh, uh, joining us for the hour. Yep, thank you. And uh, the the book is called MP3: The Meaning of a Format. It's just out from uh, Duke University Press. Is it available in in uh, uh, other formats besides a book? Actually, it's available. It will be available on iBooks and Kindle, um, and it's also available as an MP3 of a wax cylinder. <laughs> All right, uh, you can visit us online at wfmu.org. Uh, special thanks to David. Von Dockham, who for helping out for this hour, and Ken Friedman and Liz Berg. My name is Benjamin Walker. This has been uh, Radio Free Culture. Tune in next month, the every last Monday of the month. Radio Free Culture is produced by WFMU and is supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts. More information is available at wfmu.org.